format of the message is, is very simple, and it's basically Christ, community, and commission. And so uh, I want to read through this text and then go back and make some observations along the way. Let's start at verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So as we, con- as we consider the question of what, what do we want to be known for, and as a church, as individuals, what will we be known for? Um, let's start with Christ Himself. The love of Christ controls the believer. In verse 14, this, this idea of being controlled by the love of Christ. So there is a, a love, right? We sang about that through the many songs that we worshipped in a little bit ago. There's a love that came for us, right? The Jesus, the love incarnate, the love of God incarnate. So there's a love that actually saves people. That Jesus Christ saves sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. And so the, the love of God saves a person through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But that's not, that's not it. it. It doesn't only just save and capture a person, but it, from that point forward, the picture is that that same love controls God's people. The ones who have been saved by the love of Christ are now controlled by that same love, and it should increasingly define the way that, the way that we live. So this word controls is a colorful word. It gives a picture of, of holding or pressing or constraining. A favorite part of the definition is to urge or impel. So think of it this way. The, the, the love of Christ with, within the heart of the Christian urges, urges our soul forward. It presses us forward. It's just the, the wind in the sail of the believer is the love of Christ. It squeezes on us like a delightful, unshakable force from heaven with the power of Almighty God, but with the, the gentleness and tenderness of a, the hand of a father for his children. The love of Christ controls us. It should control us. It does control us at times more than others. That's a command and yet a promise almost at the same time. And the love of Christ can't be disconnected from the cross of Christ, right? If we think about the love of Christ, the ultimate demonstration of love is, is sacrifice. You see that in Romans chapter 5. A greater love has no one than this, that they would give up their life for their friend. 
Christ has died for all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And this passage says, as one has died and therefore all have died. And as Christians, the love of Christ not only controls us by its power, but it actually drives us through its pattern. So there's a, there's a power of the love of Christ and there's a pattern of the love of Christ. And we're called to be controlled not only by the power, but by the pattern of the way Jesus loved. And that's a sacrificial love. So left to ourselves, and you see this in, in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 35, is that the, the great paradox in Christianity is that in our call to die, is in our dying, we actually find life. The same life that Jesus promised, that I came that you may have life and have it abundantly, is found for the Christian in death. The great paradox of Christianity, right? So the, but the implication for us in this passage is that, that he died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Is that our, our tendency apart from the love of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, is we will live for ourselves. That's what we do. That's what we did prior to Christ intervening in our lives, is we will live for ourselves. And even after the miracle of regeneration, we are still prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. That's why the plea of the hymn is to take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, to Seal it for thy courts above. So, so anchor me to you. That's the picture of being controlled by the love of Christ. And so left to ourselves, we passionately pursue selfish desires and pursuits. We live for ourselves. But when the love of Christ penetrates a human heart, it carries with it the force and the power of heaven. It gives us a new identity. It gives us new affections. It gives us new priorities. And when the love of Christ takes control, things change. So when the love of Christ takes control, grown men cry in public. I've seen this with my own eyes. I think of Sam, Sam Matus in North Carolina, one of many people that came to faith in Wilmington. And, and Sam, when I met him, had a, a leather jacket that in, in a lot of ways really was an illustration of what he was like on the inside. He was, a, he was hard. and had chased hard after the world and, and found it to leave him empty. And God started to do some things in his family and saved his youngest brother, then saved his mom and dad. And now Sam and his other brother Sergio are, are, are the Lord's and have come to faith. But I remember in this season where God was beginning to work at his heart, you know, Sam came to a, a Sunday morning and the word of God was preached and the gospel proclaimed and Sam was convicted. And so here's this hard man on the outside and I, I see him weeping at the end of his service. Because the love of Christ has taken control of his heart and penetrated him. has shredded the competitors. and is now controlling him. And now he has a wife. And now he has kids. And he's seeking to raise them to love the same Savior that radically saved him years ago. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls the believer. It compels us. And I think about marriages rescued from certain destruction because of the love and the grace of Christ. When we encounter Jesus Christ, it changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we approach our spouse and the way we display love. Because again, it's not only the power of the love of Christ, it's the pattern of the love of Christ. So we give of ourselves freely because Jesus so freely gave of His own life. And I think of 
when the love of Christ controls someone, that even drunks can become missionaries. And so I think of Pablo, who lived across the street from Crossway Chapel of Wilmington, and did some unique things in birthing a, a Latino ministry, even though the two pastors of Crossway Chapel of Wilmington were kind of big white guys. And God explodes this Latino ministry into life through saving a whole family. And so our Hispanic brothers and sisters go across the street and start reaching out in the trailer park. And Pablo starts to come to church because they're loving on him and trying to share Christ with him. And Pablo comes to church sometimes, I think, possibly drunk, maybe hungover, maybe both, if that's possible. I don't know. Um, But God gets a hold of him. The gospel's preached and by his people and, and through Sunday morning. And, and so the love of Christ grabs a hold of Pablo's heart. And now Pablo's a missionary in Mexico. Nothing can explain that apart from the supernatural work of God in a human heart. But when the love of Christ controls you, you can lay aside a bottle, you can lay aside an addiction by the power of God and his word and his spirit, and you can go and be a missionary to the daughter you haven't seen in 14 years. Because your heart urges you to to give the gospel away that has so radically transformed you. That's what happened with Pablo. The love of Christ controls you. Things change. Movement happens. And your heart is burdened and aches to give the very thing away that you have been so radically transformed by. And our death in the gospel involves a very real turning from sin. That's why the whole picture of There's a new creation. Old things have passed. New things have come. We're called to live not for ourselves, but for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. You see, there's a a uniting with Jesus, not only in His death, but in His resurrection. Just as an encouragement, it's just like in the resurrection, you see this in the book of Romans, is that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is said to dwell in the believer to give life to our mortal bodies. Because so often, like as Christians and in the church, we can, we can live as if we have no choice but to sin, no choice but to continue to struggle and be steamrolled by the patterns of sin in our lives. And, and 2 Peter chapter 1 says something so different. It says that through God's divine power that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. And that's either true or it's not. And I would submit to you and I would just encourage you that it is absolutely true. We have everything we need for life and godliness. When the love of Christ takes control, that means everything that you need to obey Christ, to follow him, to obey his call to mission in your life, you have at your disposal the power to do that. And that's an encouragement. It should encourage you as it does me. And there's a call in Colossians. You know, The gospel is supposed to bear fruit and increase in us. And First Peter chapter 2, it says, long for the pure milk of the word, just like an infant longs for a mother's milk, so that by it you might grow in respect to salvation. There's a call to grow. It's an interesting thing. I have, I have six uh, little girls. And Bill's got me beat by like three. Girls, that is, anyways. Got me beat total by four, but... Um, one of the weird things when you have kids is they, they measure your kids in percentiles. I don't know when that stops, but it, it's, there's a weird season where like, you describe your kids in terms of percentile. Like, this is my daughter Taylor. She's like 60% in head size. 
And it's a really strange dynamic. You begin to kind of describe your children in the context of how big they are compared to the average child. It's a very prideful thing, and I'm not sure why it started, but it's just, it's, it's a funny thing as you grow up. But I wonder, you know, if we were to apply that same dynamic to spiritual development, what would those conversations look like? Even an inward conversation about, like, you know, what percentile would I be right now compared to where I, I could be or where maybe I should be? I don't say that to bring a feeling of condemnation as much as a feeling of motivation. Like, where am I percentile-wise compared to where I could be? where I should be based on my own choices or my willingness to abide in Christ and to run to His Word for growth and to be in community, a vital community that God has designed for my benefit and for my growth. Where would I be percentile-wise if there was some sort of scale to measure that like there is human physical growth? But urged by the love of Christ, we live completely for the fame and the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be known for. So as we continue on in the passage, there's a, there's a unique chunk right in the middle. So the, the last chunk is probably a chunk you're, you're more familiar with about being ambassadors, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in verse 16, there's a comment made. It says, from now on, therefore, in light of what we just talked about, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. So when the love of Christ controls us, I would say it this way, we begin to see people through the, the lens of Christ. So the love of Christ takes control, and because the love of Christ controls us, we now see people through the lens of Christ. The, the way that we view them is consistent with a, a spiritual man or woman, as opposed to the fleshly person that once looked at with eyes that were merely human and fleshly. So the lens of Christ causes us to love and move toward people who are nothing like us. Causes us to see people that are nothing like us as precious to God and as as new creations in Christ. And it causes us to form relationships, to provide encouragement, to serve them and to build up their gifts and to see them as unique and God-glorifying body parts that are precious in God's sight. So the picture Paul provides in the text is basically that apart from the Spirit of God and apart from the love of Christ, we look at those around us with a fleshly lens, much like we would have considered Christ before we came to faith as maybe a good teacher or some moral philosopher or just a carpenter. But we don't, we don't see Jesus that way any longer. We see Him as Savior and Lord and precious to us. And in the same way, there's a transformation of the way we see other people particularly in the body of Christ. There's a few things I want to submit to you to consider. So if we fail to see those in the body of Christ through the lens of Christ, there's a few things I would submit are going to happen. One is that we're going to consume instead of sacrifice. That our drive is going to be consumption instead of sacrifice. And this is so rampant in the church in America. Consumer Christianity I think we're all tempted to that end at some degree, lesser, greater extents across the span of Christendom. I think the temptation is there for everybody. It's a kind of funny illustration, but one of my kids um, came home from school and they go to a a small classical public charter school. There's actually a fair amount of Christian homes and 
some Catholic, some Mormon. But she had an interaction with uh, um, a, a kid who was in a, a professed kind of Christian home, and they go to church kind of. But he was talking about how his parents would bring the kids, the younger kids, to church, drop them off for children's church, and then go on a date. I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm all for creative date nights, but I'm not quite certain that's the healthiest choice, right? It's kind of an extreme example of something that I think can be more subtly present in the heart of really every believer. It's like, what, I mean, what does the church have to offer me? What can I get for the, what can I get for the greatest benefit and the least cost to me? It's kind of like Christian capitalism, right? We talked about it a little bit yesterday at the forum. But the lens of Christ thinks firstly through the lens of service and sacrifice, not consumption. It doesn't mean that we, the church shouldn't offer certain things, but it shouldn't be the lens that we think through firstly. We should think firstly through sacrifice. How can I give my life for the cause and the sake of Christ and for his people in a way that's beneficial to those around me? And what great benefit it is when we lay our lives down for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our brothers and sisters in this unique spiritual family, right? All different, so different, but yet under, in the same spiritual family under one under one father, what can I give instead of what can I get? So I think that ha- can happen if we don't have the lens of Christ. Secondly, is I think you're gonna, you'd run into isolation instead of integration. So you isolate instead of integrate. It's a good point to just remind us that there's never going to be a point in our lives where we don't need the body of Christ. It simply will never happen on this side of eternity. God has designed each and every one of us to need each other. There will never be a moment in your life where that is not true. In Ephesians chapter 4, there's this picture that God has put the, the church together, this spiritual family together in such a way. And, he's, and he's, he's appointed apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And he's done that for the building up of the body of Christ in love. It talks about how there's, there's a certain point where all of that is necessary because there's this word until you. So he's done all of that until this. And so this, this is the day where we no longer need that. Okay? It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, we can mature, but I'm relatively certain from what I know from the Scriptures that we will never fully measure up to the fullness of the measure, the stature of Jesus Christ until we are with Him. So that means until that day when we're with Him in glory that we're going to need one another. And if we need one another because we're all sinful, it forces us to have to think well to, to do well with the way that we look at each other. To look through the lens of sacrifice instead of consumption. And to think well about the boundaries that the gospel can, can change. And I think about all the stories that I heard in the 10-year anniversary I went to a few weeks ago. We had a setting where people just bearing testimony to God's faithfulness over the last 10 years. And time and time again, you know what always bubbled to the top? 
It was relationship. Just across the board. Especially with the men. It's unique for, for men to experience close relationships in our culture. But time and time again, hearing testimony to the benefit, the sweetness of fellowship with other men who spurred them on to be godly husbands and fathers and held them accountable and, and caused them to press into Christ and to chase after him harder and run faster the race set before them. That's what the body of Christ does, and we need it. We desperately need it. And there's a temptation to pull away. In seasons of maybe temptation and sin, one of the things Satan will want to do firstly is to pull you away from that which will give you life. The Word of God and the body of Christ. Don't let it happen. Invest well in each other. Steve and I were talking even yesterday about the, and this exists in Wilmington as well, is just even racial divides in, the, in a city. What would it be like to experience diversity in the body of Christ, racially, culturally, because the gospel is shattered boundaries that exist? humanly speaking. Because that's what, that's what heaven's going to be like. It's a, it's a picture of heaven on earth. Like people from every tribe and tongue and people group and nation will worship the Lamb forever. So why not fight for that kind of picture here on earth? How sweet would that be? We've had a picture of that in North Carolina. Like even a glimpse of diversity I think few churches experience through the birth of this unique Latino ministry. And it's something to look out on a group of people and see them worship and to see them struggle through language difficulties, all because they love Christ and are controlled by the love of Christ, which compels them to love one another and gives them a different lens to look at each other instead of through just the differences that are so apparent and seem to be like indestructible boundaries at times. So let's integrate instead of isolate. Let's be committed to community. Secondly, or thirdly, I think what can happen is you can neglect needed encouragement. Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 10 both tell us that there's needed encouragement day by day from the body of Christ. And so you have modeling of godly marriages and, and parenting, and you have biblical manhood and womanhood. I remember seeing an interaction between two guys in a coffee shop one time, a group of guys I was in an accountability group with, and one of them was just in a difficult season of just temptation and struggle and discouragement. This other brother who wasn't particularly emotional kind of guy or relational, he just looked at him like this, this in the midst of people drinking coffee and he's like, just really heartfelt. He's like, he's like, I love you. You know, in any other setting, any other context, it just seems awkward. When the love of Christ controls even grown men, they can look at each other in a coffee shop and be like, I love you and don't be discouraged and to speak hopefulness instead of hopelessness, you know, and things like that happen. And we encourage one another day by day. We support one another. Galatians 6, we bear one another's burdens. In the same kind of stir stick way I mentioned before, in Hebrews 3.13, Hebrews 10, uh, verse 24, there's, there's also a stirring that happens to one another through us, that God uses us to stir up encouragement, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And we need that. Otherwise, what happens is we become stagnant and we become hard to sin. And so you need each other. Let's not neglect needed encouragement. As we go back to consider that primary question of what do we want to be known for, let's, let's be known for the type of community that's a powerful display of the gospel. I think of a, a story, uh, there's a guy named Brad McBee. He was probably one of the first guys I discipled. 
um, as a young leader and um, wasn't a pastor quite yet, but it was a, he came to Mountain View Community Church in Fort Collins as an atheist, a very outspoken atheist. But God had he and his girlfriend in a place at the time where they were, they were just wrestling and struggling with their relationship and with some stuff in their past that was really bringing a lot of hurt. And she was eager to be a part of something meaningful. And so she came to our small group, and Brad kind of begrudgingly came along. So over the course of about a year, year and a half, Brad came to faith. And God got a hold of his heart. The love of Christ grabbed a hold of him and radically changed him. And one of the things he shared when he was baptized his testimony was, and he said it real simply, he said, he said the, the Word of God changed me. He said, but the people of God kept me coming back. It's like, that's so good. Because there should be a winsomeness to our relationships, our community, that is appealing and, and attractive and curious to the world around us. And Brad experienced that. And I, I believe other people will experience that if we allow the love and the lens of Christ to control us and to, to frame the way we interact with each other. The Word of God would change people's hearts, but maybe that His people would keep them coming back. Amen? That'd be good. It'd be good to see that more and more. So love that sacrifices, love that doesn't discriminate, all these things are part of biblical Christ-centered community. It's a taste of heaven on earth. So we therefore no longer see people according to the flesh, but according to the way that God sees them. As we continue on in this text, it kind of takes us to really the culmination, uh, I would say, of the, the charge in this passage. I'm going to read it again. I want to read verses 17 through 20. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this lens of Christ is incredibly important to our commission. We talked about this some yesterday. If I can just be transparent with you. So my biggest problem isn't, isn't knowing this text. I've studied this text for a number of years now. And I know that God calls me an ambassador. And I know that He says in this passage that his design and his desire is to make an appeal through me to the world around me that people would be reconciled to God. I know that intellectually. And I've embraced it in some measure. But there's a heart issue that I've got to get over. There's a heart issue that often sets in. And it's basically the fact that I don't, my heart does not break for people the way Jesus' heart breaks for people. I do not see my neighbors with the same urgency that Jesus sees them with. And you see this in, in Matthew chapter 9, that Jesus, when He looked out on the crowds and the masses, it says the way that He felt and that what moved Him was compassion. Because He saw them stressed and lost and harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
destined for destruction. A sheep without a shepherd is destined for destruction. But between me and you, I don't often see my neighbors through that lens. Because I'm much too wrapped up in my own busyness and the things that stress me from day to day, all the pressures of my own home and my job. And, and so I lose sight of the fact that around me there's, there, there are things that have eternal significance at stake. And I forget that. And my guess is probably we all do at some level. Is that we forget about the issue of the gospel is an eternal matter. It's an issue of life and death eternally. And I'm so few times moved with that type of restlessness and urgency. And so the question is, do I, do I see the world around me through this same lens that Jesus saw the world? Does my heart break when I consider the Christless eternity for the millions throughout the world without Christ? The thousands throughout Rockford that are without Christ. The hundreds in my neighborhood that are without Christ. The, the ones in my workplace and in my home, in my family, and my friends that are apart from Christ. Is my heart moved the way that Jesus' heart is moved for the lost? And I think all of us could stand well to, to pray for the heart of Christ for people around us. Because in our busy culture, it's so often a temptation to forget. So why do we plant churches? Why do we make disciples? Why do we share Christ with non-Christians in our lives? The, resp- the response is, is simply because we must. We must do it. It is not someone else's responsibility. It's yours and it's mine. In this passage, there's an inescapable reality that for each one of us, we have been given the badge of ambassador for Jesus. We represent Jesus Christ and we represent God himself to this world. And God is saying, I want to make an appeal through you to this world that you might beg them that people would be reconciled to God. That is my call as much as it is yours. And so we have to, having been confronted by that, lay a hold of it, right? But it's difficult in the midst of our culture that leaves us so little margin to be with non-Christians. And a lot of our time yesterday, a lot of my talk had to do with a very simple charge to just, what can you do to create space in your life to be with people who don't know Jesus Christ? It sounds very simple, but it can be very difficult in our culture because we are incredibly busy people, busied by so many things and distracted from the most important thing. And you see that issue of importance talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, says, when I came to you, I delivered to you that which is of first importance. And that issue is that Jesus Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the issue of first importance. No competitors in God's eyes. But I don't often live that way, right? There's this danger of delay that I think can set in for us. Charles Spurgeon, speaking on this idea of today, said it this way. I'll read a little tidbit from one of his sermons. He says, Every command of Christ bears today's date. He says, If a thing is right, it should be done at once. 
If it is wrong, stop it immediately. Whatever you are bound to do, you are bound to do now. There may be some duties of a later date, but for the present, that which is the duty is the duty now. There is an immediateness about the calls of Christ. What he bids you do, you must not delay to do. You cannot tell that you will be in company this evening with someone who will never have a warning if you do not give it tonight. He says, now, now, because it is now, you, you have to do it now. He says, oh, pity those poor souls who live in darkness and do not know our sweet Lord Jesus. He says, you are the light of the world. Defer not the light giving, lest the night come to them wherein you cannot help them. There's an urgency about us. And I think at times we can make this more complex than it has to be. Because God uses housekeepers as missionaries. He uses insurance adjusters as missionaries. He uses accountants and carpenters and contractors and roofers. And the like is missionaries and athletes. And I, there's a couple stories I saw. I don't know if you've ever watched the videos, the I am second videos. Um, but it's this idea that basically Jesus is first and I am second. And so it's, it's a bunch of videos by a lot of famous people, m- musicians, actors, and the like. Some people you'd recognize, some you probably wouldn't. There's a couple testimonies I'll share because it illustrates this point. So Stephen Baldwin, one of the Baldwin brothers, he's an actor and he shares his testimony on a video about how God began to work in his life. So he's just filled with sinfulness and debauchery and has no interest in God. And he has a housekeeper who begins to clean his home. And so Stephen Baldwin and his wife begin to recognize that she sings all the time. But she sings worship songs all the time. And so they, they approach her Actually, I think the wife approaches her and basically asks the question, like, why, basically, why are you always singing about God? And she kind of gives some explanation. And Stephen asks another question, and she, and she begins to laugh. The housekeeper does. And so Stephen Baldwin looks at her and is like, what, why are you laughing? She says, I'm laughing because you think I'm only here to clean your house. But she, she, had a, she had a bigger mission. I mean, God had her there for some other reason in addition to cleaning a house, she saw her, her vocation as an opportunity to be an ambassador. And she took that seriously. So Stephen, and she actually looked Stephen Baldwin in the eyes as a lost man and said, God is going to save you. You're going to have a ministry to people. Some sort of So the idea of ministry for Stephen Baldwin at that moment was a completely foreign idea. But sure enough, now he has a unique kind of media ministry where he's an evangelist and God saved him and God's doing his thing, just as he does. The love of Christ controls someone. Things change, right? All through a housekeeper. Another example was, uh, there's a band called Korn, which I hope none of you, if many of you actually know who Korn is, but it's, um, I I had the unpleasant experience of being exposed to Korn when I was young because I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, Probably one of the most dark and evil bands I, I have ever heard as far as just lyrically type of music. Um, so their lead singer, and I think some of their other band members at this point have, have come to faith. And so their lead singer does an I Am Second video, and he describes the journey and the lostness of 
depravity of just being a musician and drugs and sex and alcohol and the like. And, and so God starts to do some things in his life. And what happens is he has a, he has a real estate agent. The guy who's trying to sell his, sell his house for him. And this real estate agent, again, is just he's a faithful brother. He just he feels compelled to be faithful, to bring the, the gospel to this man, this very lost man. And so one day they're, they're interacting, they're looking at a house or something, and, and he goes up to him. I forget the lead singer's name, but he, he says, hey, I just I feel like God wants me to share something with you. And, um, and he just real simply looks at him. He said, I just feel like God wants me to tell you that he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And immediately this man's heart was, was struck with the good news of Christ. And he surrendered to Jesus. His life, like his eternity is forever changed because of the simple act of obedience by a realtor. God's people are all over the place. And sometimes it's truly as simple as just speaking about Christ in a setting where God has you already. Being purposeful with your words. Being bold with your words and stepping through doors when God opens them. And like Colossians 4, praying for those open doors. And seeing situations and sporting events and the places where you already are with a different lens. That I am an ambassador. That is, that is my identity. And I'll share one other thing as well. Is I think we do a poor job of in America. I shared this yesterday. Is I think that there's a temptation a lot of times as believers in the church to delegate and subcontract disciple making to the perceived professionals. That it's the pastor's job to, to disciple. Now the pastor should equip you for the work of the ministry to make disciples and to maybe help provide a process for that or resources for that. But it is not simply pastor's jobs to make disciples. Matthew 28 is not relegated to just pastors. Every Christian is called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching. And God is with you to the end of the age, to that call, right? We're all ambassadors. And there's this urgent call to like, God has saved you, He's reconciled you, and He's not only done that, but He's given you something. He's entrusted me with the message and the ministry of reconciliation. The essence of that is that I go, and in my life, in the, the lane that I run in in my life, that I run with in mind that God has me on a, a path and a plan to share Christ with people along the way. That I would implore or beg people to be reconciled to God. That I would speak about Christ. You see it in Romans chapter 10, right? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on the one whom they've not believed? And how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless someone's sent? That's us. It's not someone else's responsibility, it's yours. And we must make disciples because we're the only ones given that call. The church of Christ, the true, the true church of God is called to make disciples. Ordinary people captivated by an extraordinary God 
and delivering a life-changing message. Housekeepers, real estate agents, claims adjusters, stay-at-home moms, tradesmen, teachers, farmers. God gave this ministry to all of us. We must deliver the message. It is our commission collectively to make disciples of all nations. That's what we want to be known for. We make disciples. I saw this full circle in one example in, in Wilmington with a couple that has become dear friends of ours. And so we met Jeremy and Nicole a few months into living in North Carolina. Um, I shared the story yesterday, so some of you have heard it. So we start, So where it all started, like the purposefulness for us is, is we put on our shoes and we went for a walk. And when we went for our walk, we went with a, at least some lens of like, Lord, just give us interaction with someone. Give us somebody in the neighborhood who is without you. And so we run into Jeremy and Nicole. Next step was we walked across their lawn and we started talking to them. Found out they had lots of kids and little known to us that they were, they were a mess. They had kind of escaped from New York, her family, and right after her husband, her first husband had committed suicide, they got together and they had a baby and it was kind of a mess and they're both lost and, and they needed friends. And so we started, we didn't know all that when we met them, we just went out for a walk. And so three and a half years later, after tons of moments of crisis and God opening opportunities to share Christ with them, both of them come to faith. And I have a chance to baptize both of them. Probably the most significant day of ministry I've ever had is I baptized my own father shortly before he died of pancreatic cancer. And I baptized Jeremy and Nicole the same, the same day. And, sorry, that was dangerous territory to go to. Um, but th- those are the moments we remember, Right? At the end of our lives, like it's, it's people that matter. And the gospel is intensely people-driven. Like God desires worshipers. Like you may have heard, like evangelism exists because worshipers don't. That's the way John Piper put it. There's an urgency we feel in our hearts. And so Jeremy and Nicole come to faith. The last night that we had in Wilmington, I was going to say bye to them for the last time and I walked into their home and what they're doing at that moment so think, scan back six years prior they were lost and apart from Christ and I walk in that night and they're opening the scriptures together trying to equip Nicole to share Christ with one of Jeremy's co-workers the next day there's a miracle of God because the love of Christ controls people and does radical things but disciples who make disciples right that's what we're called to make it's our responsibility. And it's hard. And sometimes it takes a long time. But it's worth the effort. It's worth the time. It's worth the struggle. It's worth the inconvenience. The so love of Christ, the pattern of the love of Christ is to give of oneself, to sacrifice, to be inconvenienced in subtle ways, to engage with people instead of just running into your house because you're tired from a day's work. Sometimes it's the subtle sacrifices that can make the biggest difference. But make disciples who make disciples. And what a joy it is to see that. So, as I close off, it's just I know, I know it would be Steve's heart and the leadership here and certainly God's heart for all of us is that 
that what we'd be known for at the end of our lives, what Rock Valley Bible Church would be known for, what each one of you would be known for, and that you might sit here 10 and 20 and 30 years from today, that you'd look around in this very room, that you'd see second and third and fourth generation believers. And I'm not just talking about physical blood family. But you'd look around and you'd see disciples who have made disciples. Because each one of you have been faithful to the call to be ambassadors. That's what we want to be made known for. We want to make Jesus known and make him famous by making disciples of all nations and this little sliver of the kingdom that God has entrusted to you to make an impact for. Amen? Can I pray for us as a, as a people and for you as a church? And Let's go to the Lord and ask him to graciously do that. Father, I have no doubt, and what a joy it is to pray when we have absolutely no doubt that it's your will to pray for something. So I pray, Lord, that you would um, you would send out these workers into the harvest and that you would ignite in each one of us an urgency and a joy for being uh, ambassadors. That we would lay aside... Um, comfort and convenience for the sake of engaging those around us who are without Christ. I pray that you bring understanding of what that means for each person here. I don't know their lives. I don't know their pressures. I don't know their stories. But I do know what you call them to do if they are in Christ, and that is to be about your business as long as today is still called today. So I pray that for each one of us that we feel a sense of urgency uh, to engage the loss with the message and the hope of the gospel, to give them Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that we keep of first importance the matter which is of first importance, the gospel message, the ministry of reconciliation. I pray that the love of Christ would control us, compel us through its power, through its pattern to love one another well, to be devoted to community, to reach out in community that people might see our love for one another and thereby know that we are your followers and your people, that we see many, many people come to faith. I pray for Rock Valley Bible Church that five and ten years from now, this room will be filled with second and third and fourth generation Christians as a result of the faithful work of these brothers and sisters in this room. Thank you for Steve and the leadership here. Ask for wisdom on the best way to engage this city to make the most impact in this corner of the world, this time period of history for the fame of Jesus Christ. You deserve all the glory and honor and power. And Father, we thank you for being pleased to crush your own son, that we might be forgiven, and that you raised him to, to life, that we might have life as well. And so we, we lay a hold of that as our hope, and, and we are motivated to make much of you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.